hostility afflicts the relationship between God's people and the unbelieving world. It always has and it always will. God declared in Genesis 3.15 that unbelievers would be at war with God's people. And that began when Cain killed Abel. There is no escape from this reality in a fallen world. As God's people, we joyfully sing the song of Moses. And we joyfully sing the song of the Lamb, which we find in Revelation 15. This is our song, a song we've sung in so many words today. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. It is impossible for such joy in God to flow unhindered in a world that bows at the altar of false gods and lives in rebellion against God's word and against his Christ. There must be a conflict. In such a world, Cain kills Abel. Herod kills the children of Bethlehem, hoping to kill Messiah. In such a world, mobs turn Christ over to crucifixion and apostles are martyred. And the followers of Christ continue to die and to suffer persecution to this very day. Faithful followers of Christ will always be a people at war. And the war will be many, faceted in many different ways, at war with our own fleshly desires. We will be at war with the idolatries of this fallen world. We will be at war in defense of God's truth, and we will be at war against Satan's lies. There must be a battle. The only way to avoid this conflict is for God's people to resist our calling and to embrace the idolatries of this world. As we do that, we find reproachment, we find peace with the world around us, but only in that unfaithful way. In a different kind of conflict, Yet in a way that speaks to us on this side of the cross, Israel embodies the believer's conflict with a hostile world, a world that is against God and His truth. As the book of Numbers closes, God's people stand ready to fulfill His call of conquest in the promised land. Let's remember from Numbers where it began in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, if you'd Find that text, Numbers chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. You and Aaron shall list them company by company. The very start, the book of Numbers is about going to war. 
in verse 19, as the Lord commanded Moses, so he listed them in the wilderness of Sinai, numbering the warriors, numbering Israel. And then as we come to verse 46 of this first chapter, we notice there all those listed, 603,550 able to go to war in Israel. This is the theme, one of the major themes of the book of Numbers. In subsequent chapters, we remember that Israel's encampment is then well organized and it is arranged as we work through some of those early chapters of Numbers. But once that's all in place, the glory cloud going before this people organized around the tabernacle, Israel stumbles again and again. Fails God morally rebels against where he's taking them, rebels against the people that he has called to lead them. And it's really an ugly book in many ways. It chronicles Israel's rejection of God's word and her failure again and again. Forty years now have passed and there's virtually no one left. Moses will soon die on the east side of Jordan. Caleb and Joshua will go into the promised land, but all others have fallen that rejected the Lord in that generation. But the Lord has raised up a second generation, and as the book comes to close, we're seeing signs of that grace and that good news that we're hearing about Israel as a different generation rises up that will trust God and will go into the land, will obey His word. They will possess the land that God has promised Abraham four centuries earlier, according to a number of places in Genesis, but chapter 17, verse 8, for instance. They are now about to enter that land. And we come to the closing themes here in these last chapters of Numbers. Some were concerned about how we're going to cover chapters 33 through 36 today. That's very easy. We have no evening service. We, we had no uh, Bible classes this morning, so we're just going to put all three of those into one and be here all afternoon. We're going to obviously go through very quickly, summarily, and, and I, I think for many good reasons, just where we are in our schedule, but also the text that is here, we don't need to dwell long on, on much of it, but we will narrow in here particularly to chapter 33, verse 50 and following, where we find the commission to conquer the land, here again repeated, and now the last time in the book of Numbers, very formally placed here at the end of chapter 33, the commission to conquer the land. There is first of all a call to displace and to destroy. Verse 50 of chapter 33, And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan and into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones, destroy all their metal images, demolish all their high places. So it is a call to displace and destroy. Driving out the inhabitants of the land is directly related to destroying their idols and their places of worship on hills throughout Israel. On these high hills, all manner 
of corrupt sexual expression and even infanticide took place. And God was long past ready to judge this moral corruption. It's also then secondly a call to possess and to settle the land. Verse 53, and you shall take possession of the land and settle in it. For I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Wherever the lot falls for anyone, that shall be his. According to the tribes of your fathers, you shall inherit it. More on this in a few moments. But it is also, thirdly, a call then to obey or suffer. Verse 55. Notice this. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be barbs in your eyes, thorns in your sides. They shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. Verse 55, with respect to the pagan inhabitants of the land, they will become a great trouble to you. This recalls, of course, chapter 25, Israel's immoral worship of Baal with the Midianite prostitutes. For God's people, as they go into this land, there will be many fleshly allures. There will be temptations piled on top of temptations that they must resist as they go to battle. There is bait on moral death traps everywhere that they go. Attitudes, goals, philosophies, sensual pleasures. They all seem so satisfying But they will become, God warns Israel here, the source of bondage, the source of pain, and the source of sorrow. God doesn't hide on these things. He makes it very clear to His people, Israel, and He makes it very clear to us on this side of the cross. Sin brings bondage, pain, and sorrow. That's the seed that you plant. That's the harvest that will grow up. In our world, the idols are much more sophisticated, but they really aren't all that different when you get to the bottom of them. The idols that we are tempted with, that we must go to war against, are idols such as material wealth and the sense that I am at peace, I am good with things. If I just had more, all would be well. And these types of thoughts. We go to war with family idolatry. My family, all important. More important than God. We go to war with sensual pleasures that are beyond what the Canaanites could even envision. The sensual pleasures that are available to us as God's people, assaulting us on screens everywhere. Assaulting us in the interests of this world, in the philosophies that this world presents. We go to war against the attitudes of rage that are all the rage these days. 
against the self-autonomy, the self-promotion. All of this we need to recognize ends in bondage, pain, and sorrow. For us as God's people, perhaps in a different sense, but ultimately there's nothing good in sin. And God reminds us of this again and again and again. So Israel is to go into the land and to oppose the world that they find there, but also to resist its allures, to serve as God's judgment upon these people, but also to not be drawn in to their ways and their sensual pleasures. So with respect to God, verse 55, but with respect, or I'm sorry, with respect to the pagan inhabitants, verse 55, but verse 56, with respect to God. If you give in to their ways, I will do to you as I thought to do to them. God does not want to punish Israel. He wants to bless her. God does not want to discipline us on this side of the cross. He wants to bless and encourage and prosper us spiritually. But where we let the world draw us in, we invite discipline and God does not look the other way. But we pause and ask a question that we've asked before in chapter 31, and is this a call then to genocide? Is that what God is condoning here? We've considered this under chapter 31. I want to just look at it a, a little bit differently, but essentially repeat the ideas that were there for us to remember, perhaps not thinking of these things now as we passed that conversation some weeks ago. But let's say, first of all, that God created this land. Just to get our head right, we've got to start there. He created this land. It is His to give to anyone He chooses. Only when we take God out of the equation and just say, this is Israel doing this, do we even ask this question. It's God's land to give to whom He chooses. Imagine that you built a house with your own hands. You contracted everything or did everything. It was your house. You put it together. You built it. And you lease it out to tenants, hoping to make some money on this investment. You go away for a year and you come back to find that your house has now become a meth lab. And the tenants, everybody knows around this house that you've built, have guns and will shoot to kill anybody who crosses the threshold. That's unwelcomed. That's your house. And what do you do? You walk away and say, well, okay, I don't want to offend these people. You say, no, this is my house. You call the authorities. You do what is necessary to have them removed from that place because it's your house. And what they're doing there is immoral. It violates the law. As God gives this land to His people, this is His land. He created it. He didn't make it with His own hands. He called it into existence. It's His. And what they are doing there far exceeds in God's eyes how we might look at some individuals taking over our house and making it into a meth lab. If an owner is right to evict tenants who have turned his property into a place of ill repute, God is certainly just to remove the Canaanites who had morally polluted the land and entrenched rebellion against him. 
They'd rather die than do what is right. And God gives them that choice. Secondly, God must judge all sin. When and how God chooses to exact that justice is His call to make, not ours to critique. We can read genocide into this text, and genocide is evil. But what we must start with is that every sin of every human being will be judged. The wages of sin is death always. So this is not genocide, that is Israel targeting an ethnic people for selfish purposes and just claiming that God sent them to do it. This is divine judgment that God has delayed for four centuries. And we can put a different spin on it. But looking at what God has revealed, He has been patient. Four centuries of this rebellion. Number three. At a certain place, people become indistinguishable from the false gods they create and worship. To demolish idolatrous worship is to demolish the people who worship idolatrously. You can't separate the two at a certain point. Number four, God's judgment against sin starts with the discipline of his own people. And this is a critical part of the conversation. God had judged, let's remember, the people coming in to displace the Canaanites, God had judged an entire generation in only 40 years. On certain days, tens of thousands of people had dropped in the desert, God's people, because of their rebellion. Sadly, verse 56 proved prophetic. I will do to you as I thought to do to them. God is not sending the Israelites in to remove these people and allowing His people to live however they want. In fact, what will happen is they will take on the sins of those that they displace. And what will God do? He will take Israel out of the land as well and send her to 70 years of exile for her sin. God will judge all sin. God will judge every sin of every sinner of all time and eternity. He must. Or he would cease to be a holy God. But when and how he does that is his prerogative. And it is not a matter of how could God do this to a people. It's a matter of how does God not do this to all of us now. That's the real issue. He is a holy God. He cannot stand sin. But patiently, He endures it for a time. The time for the Canaanites had come. And if you're here today without Jesus Christ, your time will come as well. It's vital that you prepare for it. As we continue into chapter 34, we have now just some final details that are here for us. And they're interesting to us, I think, on some level. They don't apply to our life directly, obviously, in some sense. Uh, We are encouraged by it, but we'll just look at this fairly briefly. The borders and distribution of the land we find in chapter 34. 
First of all, God sets the boundaries of the land in the first 15 verses. You'll notice there the borders are described of the land. Uh, Lord says to Moses, verse 2, command the people of Israel, say to them, when you enter the land of Canaan, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. God is going to bring them in and to this inheritance. And you'll notice verse 3, your south side will be, that is the borders on the south of the land will be, we won't take the time to read each place name and But we notice there in verse 6, the western border. In verse 7, the northern border. In verse 10, your eastern border. Verse 13, this is the land that you shall inherit by lot. That is, in the casting of lots, in discerning the will of God where each tribe is to go. This is the land, these are the borders. That's interesting, these borders are never realized by Israel. This entire stretch of land, they possess much of it under Solomon, particularly when they came to the highest point of the kingdom, but they never actually fully possess this. And one of the reasons, I think there might be others to chase, but one of the reasons is incomplete obedience. Generations come that do not trust God to carry forward the mission that he's given. And so they don't ever really completely fill this land. It might also speak of the grace of God to extend these borders beyond what they could ever really truly achieve. But the borders are defined there in verses 1 through 15. And then verses 16 to 29, God commissions leaders to divide the land. Verses 16 through 17, we see there Eliezer, the priest, and Joshua, who are to oversee that division of the land among the tribes. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, verse 17, These are the names of the men who should divide the land for you for inheritance. Eliezer, the priest, Joshua, the son of Nun, we've met them. And then you shall take, verse 18, one chief from every tribe to divide the land of inheritance. We see Caleb there listed first in verse 19, and then an individual from each of the 12 tribes who will oversee the division of the land. Just looking at this graphic, this is where it will eventually lead uh, to the tribes being positioned in this way. Dan, you may remember, changes position, uh, but listed here in the, its southern location, then it will also carry up to the north, which is not pictured on this map. But basically, the idea of smaller tribes you see there with smaller uh, locations and larger tribes, larger locations. It's not all about the square footage. It's there, there's there's uh, uh, geographical ideas that are brought in, topographical ideas that are brought in to which tribe receives which section but divided out in a um, thoughtful, careful way, which is true with everything that we see in the book of Numbers. We come then to chapter 35, and we look at the Levitical inheritance in the land. So you're going into the land, this is your commission, here's the borders, here's how it's going to be divided among the tribes, but there's one tribe we haven't talked about, and that's the tribe of the Levites who never inherit land. Uh, at least not in the sense of the other tribes. We find, first of all, that the Levites, verse uh, chapter 35, will be given 48 cities, 48 Levitical cities, and think here, small towns, uh, many of them be the size of the plot of our property here, 
with some sort of wall around them, just small towns. But they are given 48 of these that are distributed somewhat evenly throughout the territories. So we just look at these maps. Uh, I, I know you can't probably see this, but those 48 cities are uh, listed here. It's really hard to depict them if you do have good eyes and can see the red squares. Uh, those are the cities of refuge. Of the 48, six are cities of refuge. So these cities, these Levitical cities, divided out this way among the tribes by their size, by their land holdings. There are this many Levitical towns and the Levitical clans are listed here for you. You can just see how they're distributed fairly evenly throughout the tribes. There's nine there with Judah, Simeon, but remember those are two um, tribes in one region. Uh, so fairly evenly distributed. Uh, by Cisjordan, there is the, that's the idea of this side of the Jordan, the west side of the Jordan, or Transjordan, the other side across the Jordan River, which is really um, describing a later date as Israel will think about the Jordan River this way. But we remember the story of Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh who will inherit on both sides of, the, of this river. But remember the Levites' inheritance is not land, but privileged service to God. Their lives were devoted to the ritual worship of the Lord, to the protection of God's holy sanctuary. We notice as well that the Levites are distributed throughout the land in population centers. That is, God is assuring that the land will be covered with places where God's word is taught. And all of God's people will find themselves not far away from some Levitical city where they can go and hear the Word of God taught, hear the Word of God interpreted for their daily lives, meet with a priest, uh, eat a meal together in sacrifice and, the, and these ideas, and indeed support these Levites in their work for God. The Levites' distribution then, and the Levites' inheritance, not of large portions of land, but just of these cities and the pasture land immediately around. They did have some ability to make a living on their own, on some level, to, to have some cattle of some sort or the like, some small crops. But their focus would be on teaching the Word of God, knowing the Word, reading the Word, prayer, and leading people in understanding of the Word of God. This was their life. The Lord was their portion, not the land as such. And the only way that any of this can happen is for Israel to drive out the Canaanites. They are not going to be welcomed in. There will be warfare as they faithfully observe the law on the land. There can be no fellowship with the Canaanites. There can only be war, and these cities are to be established. Now, we've mentioned here uh, the six cities of refuge among the 48. Just a few brief words on that. And uh, I, I have a feeling this guy here that his mother always told him, he always kept everything to the last second. But I don't think that generally that's how the city of refuge happened, that the manslayer just snuck in by the skin of his teeth. But it gives you kind of the idea there of what a city of refuge is, at least conceptually. But you see the six, there's some question on Kadesh. There's not two, well, there were numerous Kadeshes, but uh, one of these two would have been the city of refuge. You see kind of their distribution there, uh, the six 
three on one side of the Jordan, three on the other, which would allow individuals to find refuge there. What's that all about? Well, we see here in verses 9 through 34, first of all, 9 through 15, the general location and purpose of the cities of refuge. That is, when someone has committed manslaughter, is not intended to kill someone, but has killed someone accidentally, they can run to the city of refuge and not be killed themselves. There are, in verses 16 through 21, protocols for cases of murder. What constitutes murder? Basically, you meant to do it. You lay in wait for this individual, you premeditated their death, you sought to bring their their life to an end, you are guilty of murder. The murderous practices of the Canaanites was to be replaced with a deep respect for life by the inhabitants of the land. That is God's call upon His holy people. In verses 22 through 29, we see protocols for cases of manslaughter. We'll not take the time to work through these aspects, but basically, again, the idea is you did not intend to kill this person. It was an accident. You may have even been really stupid in what you did. You may have been working with a millstone on a second floor and it slipped out of your hands and landed on someone's head. That was a dumb thing to do. You were careless in it, but you did not intend to kill this person. You're working in the field with someone, and, and, you, and you harm them, and they die, and you feel horrible about it. That individual was not to be killed. A little bit of bridging the distance to our own day. How in a day without police force, how in a day without courts sitting to meet day by day, how do you achieve justice? In such an ancient city, you achieve justice by the family meeting out that justice. Particularly individuals who are identified as kinsmen redeemers. They had unique responsibilities for the family. So if, if a man died, there were responsibilities toward his widow and his family. There were land issues that we see, for instance, with Boaz and Ruth in the book of Ruth and other things. But one of them was, if one of your clan died at the hand of someone else, you were responsible to administer justice. And justice was a person dies, a person dies. The person that killed them is to die. That was your job as a family. That was your responsibility. They say, well, that's a weird world. Yes, it is, but it's not all that far away from the world we live in. I, um, we are preparing for a, a trip to India here this month and looking to represent the church and to minister there in India. And it reminds me of a scene that I was in there some years ago where we were in a car, I was half asleep, and uh, a motorcyclist came right in front of our car and just about lost his motorcycle, and we just about hit him. And, and I'm like, wow, that was close, and thought like an American, just keep driving on. That's the end of it. But I noticed that our missionary, Shambhu Day, was virtually shaking with fear. And I said, I, he's like, what, what's going on? We didn't hit him. We're okay. It's all fine. He says, no, you don't understand. If we had hit him, 
the community, would have, the village would have gathered around our car, drug us out, and beat us. And I don't want that to happen to you. I didn't think he wanted it to happen to himself either. But that's today. That's our world now. There are places in this world that still have this type of thinking. It's so distant from us. We can't imagine. But we live in a world where there is the exercise of law, where there are police forces to deal with such matters and the like. That wasn't the case back here. And so if someone died, even accidentally, it was the kinsman redeemer's responsibility to exact life for life. But God's law here is a bit unique and says that the one who kills someone accidentally is not to be killed. But rather, notice verse 25. There's this unique provision in these cities of refuge. The manslaughterer can run to these cities of refuge and live there without being killed, verse 25, until the death of the high priest. Now this is really interesting, and Wenham captures it very well here. I just quote him. The murderer who took life deliberately is deliberately put to death himself. So the protocol for meditated murder, premeditated murder, the protocol for that is death. The manslaughterer, by distinction, who took his life by chance, that is, Exodus 21, he fell into his hand, that is, it was accidental, must await the chance of the high priest's death before he can be released from the city of refuge. It's interesting how this worked. It's the high priest's death that liberates the one who has taken life accidentally. And there is something of a balance then here. The one who is guilty of manslaughter, of accidentally causing the death of another, they're suffering, but it's not the loss of life. And the protocols then for justice and holiness follow in verse 30. Notice verse 30 of chapter 35. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. You shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge. So you have this murderer who's got money and has fled to the city of refuge and says, here, take this money for my wrong. No, you won't do that. His attention is that he would return to dwell in the land, but he cannot. But that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest, you shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. If there's a murder, that one must die. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. The holiness of God is what's at stake here. The preciousness of life is defended and supported, but why is it precious? Because it's been given by God himself. We possess in a sense the very breath of God and that is to be protected. We wonder 
how God looks at our own land. If blood defiles the land, how horribly defiled is our land. As countless murders take place on a daily basis, as even more countless numbers are aborted. Blood defiles the land. Well, there's one more thing to deal with here as they prepare to enter the land, and that is female heirs of the land, chapter 36. Manasseh presents a problem. The heads of the fathers' houses, the clan of the people of Gilead, the son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of the people of Joseph, came near and spoke before Moses and before the chiefs and heads of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel. They said, The Lord commanded my Lord to give the land for inheritance by lot to the people of Israel, and my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophehad, our brother, to his daughters. You remember this? But we've come up with a problem. If, verse 3, they're married to any of the sons of other tribes of the people of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers and added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So it will be taken away from the lot of our inheritance. Our inheritance from God. And when the jubilee of the people of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. And their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. The year of Jubilee, every 50 years, all land went back to the original owner. So land from this point on that's ever sold is actually really just being rented. Because the gift of the land is from God. And this was a way to allow people to sell land or really rent it for a period of time. But it always returned back to the original owner as God had provided. We got a problem here. Remember these daughters? And these are young women. I don't know, but they're not married. So in that day, in that culture, they're probably 10 years old. They're maybe 14 or 16 years old. But they remember their faith. They're saying, they're part of this second generation that's saying, we are going into that land and we want a piece of the action. We want to be a part of God's blessing. And our father will be forgotten Because he didn't have sons, and sons inherit land. Women inherit dowries and marry into other clans and other tribes. And it was fair for them to marry into other tribes. But the people of Manasseh realized we've got a problem here. These women of faith are going into the land. They're going to possess the land. We've already decided, God has decided they will get land. Although there's no son in the family, but... If they marry into another tribe, we as a tribe will lose that land forever. It won't go back at the year of Jubilee. See the problem. Verse 5, solution. Moses commanded the people of Israel according to the word of the Lord, saying, the tribe of the people of Joseph is right, that is Manasseh. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. Let them marry whom they think best, only they shall marry within the clan of the tribe of their father. The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another. For every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers, and every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the people of Israel shall be wife to one of the clan of the tribe of her father. 
so that every one of the people of Israel may possess the inheritance of his fathers. So no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another. For each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on to its own inheritance. That's God's gift. That's the way it is to be. It won't be usual for an Israelite family to have no son. But when this happens, this is the rule. What do the daughters of Zelophehad do? What do we know of their heart? What we've seen already? Rebel against God and say, I want to marry who I want to marry. No. The daughters of Zelophehad did as the Lord commanded Moses. Ramala, Tirzah, Hagla, Milcah, and Noah. The daughters of Zelophehad were married to sons of their father's brothers. In that day, that was appropriate. And they were married into the clans of the people of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's clan. These are the commandments and the rules that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. Where does this end? I mean, this has been one messy book. There has been one story of rebellion after another. And where does it end? It ends with these women of faith obeying God, following His command, and being a blessing to Israel and receiving a blessing from Him. The book closes on an encouraging note as we are reminded of these strong women of faith and this second generation ready to obey God and enter into the land. And so verse 13 is really a summary word, but an encouraging word. It is in another sense spoken almost with exhaustion to think of all the drama that's brought them to the Jordan River. All of the sin, all of the judgment, all of the trouble that Israel has experienced over these 40 years. They come to the Jordan scarred. They come to the Jordan having experienced such difficulty because of their own sin and disobedience. But it reminds us that while we live in this world, we will fight an uphill battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. It reminds us that accommodating the world and the flesh is always a recipe for bondage, for pain. It is a recipe for sorrow. And yet it also reminds us that in the end, God will bring His people all the way home. He'll get us there by His grace. The reason, of course, is not our righteousness or the fact that we live better lives in a world around us. By God's grace, we will live better lives than those who are around us. But that is only because of God's transforming grace. The reason God will bring us home despite our sin and failure, is that our great high priest paid sin's judgment forever by dying in our place. Every sin must be judged. It must be judged by a holy God. But our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, liberated us from our deserved judgment by dying in our place, by rising from the dead to give us His eternal life. Every sin will be judged. The question is how. 
having received his righteous standing as a gift of grace. We sung of it earlier this morning. He promises to then to take us all the way home. And we will arrive at the eternal gate scarred by sin in one sense. Our stories aren't perfect either. We disobey God. We turn away from Him. We break His heart. And we suffer the consequences even as believers. When we stand before His eternal gates, we're not going to be free of those scars until, of course, they melt away in the presence of our Savior as we enter into His glory and are purified forever. A purity for us. It's been given to us as Christ dies for our sins. But as we slog forward on this side of the cross, let us pause to remember that our battle is not one of physical conflict with this world, but rather of spiritual conflict. Unlike ancient Israel, we don't wield a physical sword. We wield the sword of the Spirit, the truth of God's Word. Our mission then is not to bring down cities and to establish new governments on a Christian foundation. Our mission is not with a sword and with trumpet blast, but to conquer the hearts of the godless with the liberating gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our mission This is our battle. Our mission is to proclaim Christ crucified and risen for the salvation of souls languishing in the bondage of sin. But as this battle flows back at us, this gospel is not a welcome message in this world. And sometimes the world will come back at us with even physical resistance. Even physical weapons against us and our people through the world. This is to be expected. To be expected but not feared. For the God who delivered us from the bondage of sin, the God who will bring us all the way home, reminds us not to fear those who have no power over the soul, only power over the body. We are to fear only Him who can throw both soul and body into hell. And as we consider our liberation from that deserved destiny, as we consider the home and glory that awaits us, may we feed our resolve to fight the temptations of this dying world to give in to them. Not to give in to them. To resist them. To fight them. There's a war, Christian. That's the world we're in until we meet Christ. Go to war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Fight sin in your own heart, the allure of this world, and then take the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, into this world to conquer those in bondage and to liberate. Our task is not to destroy and punish. That's not our calling on this side of the cross. Our task is to come in and liberate, to break down the prison walls with the gospel, And to explain to people what Christ has done to liberate us from sin, to break its bondage, and to prepare for us a home in His presence forever. And in that resolve, may Christ draw us now to the fellowship of this table. For it's here that we remember who we are. It's here that we remember what has been done for us. It's here that we commune with Christ and as a body of Christ, as the body of Christ. Let us come then 
proclaiming our identification with him, our trust in his saving grace through the substitutionary death of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's liberated us, not merely from a city of refuge, but his death has liberated us from eternal bondage and judgment. May we praise him here. Father, help us to that end as these elements are received in communion with Christ and with one another. We pray that they would be received with joyful heart by your people in deep abiding anticipation of the future that awaits and indeed in resolve that we will battle the temptations of this world And that we will proclaim the coming of Christ, his death, his resurrection, his return, in a world hostile to that message, but in a world that desperately needs it. Lord, may we come here and commune with you in Christ, indwelt by your Spirit as your people. Amen. The Lord has given a gift to his church in the Lord's Supper.